Would you turn with me to Psalms chapter 37 this morning? Psalms 37 is where we'll be landing. We won't start there, but we'll land there eventually here. American culture celebrates discontentment. The marketing and advertising industries literally exist to make us dissatisfied and discontent with our current lives. It doesn't even matter what the product is. It could be something small, like what deodorant you're wearing. It could be something memorable, like a vacation or a travel package or a car. Or it could be something immediate, like what food you're going to eat for lunch. And maybe breakfast isn't doing it for you, but, you know, there's also many other options for lunch, right? I think this illustrates the point. We're we're now thinking about something we don't have. The goal with all these ads is to create discontentment so that you buy whatever it happens to be that they're selling. They're creating this need or this want, and they just so happen to have exactly what you want. That's advertising. And these ads appear everywhere, don't they? Billboards and signs, social media feeds, digital pop-ups, even in our email inboxes. They still, we still have paper ads that come to our mailbox. For some of us, that's the only mail you get <laughs> is advertisements. So much of this world is built on the belief that if I can get that thing or change this feature, or take this opportunity, I will finally be fulfilled and content. If I can get that elusive thing, if I can take this opportunity, change this about myself, I will finally be content. And discontentment is such an effective marketing tool because it appeals to our sinful hearts, doesn't it? The reason these ads appeal to us is because they've showed us something we want that we don't have. And this is the underlying root of discontentment, is it not? I want something I don't have. In its barest form, that's it. I want that and I don't have it, so I'm clamoring for what I don't have. And our world bombards us with a very simple message. If you get that thing, whatever it is you want, you will be content. It's guaranteed. In other words, changing your circumstances will make you content. That's the lie our culture tells us. If you can change something about you, then you'll finally become content. And we know that that's not true. Contentment can't be purchased with a credit card swipe or with the turn of the calendar. You know, and I know, that's not true. We know that changing our circumstances won't make us content, but yet we believe this lie, don't we? We fall into this subtle trap of thinking, If this would happen, if I could just get this or this person would do something for me, then I can be finally content. We swallow that lie because our sinful hearts love it and it appeals to us. That's why it's tempting. Think about your life right now. In what areas are you feeling discontent? Have you fallen into the subtle trap of believing and thinking that the contentment comes with a change in circumstance? This belief really starts to spiral quickly because once we start believing this, we start then to dream of a different life. Oh, if things were just a little different or different circumstances, ah, if I just, if I could just change this a little bit, then things would be this way or different relationships or different future. And and does that actually help us to be content? (laughs) No, it actually increases discontentment. Instead of a solution then, we've multiplied the problem. 
and we frustrated ourselves on top of that. That is why we must learn to be content right now wherever God has placed us. Contentment transcends circumstances. In Philippians 4.11, Paul writes, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul is rejecting the lie that we've just talked about. The lie that I need to change my circumstances in order to be content. Instead, he's telling us what the secret is. The secret to contentment. He has learned to be content no matter what situation he is in. This word learn is so important. The attitude of contentment is a learned skill. It doesn't come naturally to us, but it can be achieved. And so this word learn brings us hope because though we may not be content right now, we don't have to have a dramatic change or radical change of life to get there. Nothing external about you may change, and yet internally you may become content. We can learn to be content right here, right now, where God has placed us. And in fact, that is the will of God for us, that we would be content right here, right now. And the big question is how, right? The big question is how in the world can I do that? How can I learn to be content? And to answer that question, I'd like us to turn to Psalm 37. Because in this chapter, it's a longer psalm. In this chapter, Psalm 37, we see six actions that teach us how to be content. But before we get looking at these six actions, I'd like to take a moment to note a couple of things about the psalm, just so we can get a little bit of our our context here. The author of the psalm is David, who faced many challenges in his own life, didn't he? Let me just name one. He was anointed king, most likely around the age of 15, but he didn't begin to rule until he was at least 30. That's a long time to wait on something you know is going to happen. What he writes then about contentment is not theoretical, but it was developed through the experience of life. It was developed through years of practice, and therefore it's intensely practical. The psalm, secondly, is known as a wisdom psalm, and and this psalm is then teaching us how to live God's way in God's world. So these principles apply broadly. Now look with me at verse 1, because this introduces the topic of the psalm. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. So this psalm is teaching us not to be fearful or envious of the wicked when they prosper and the godly suffer. So we would say that David is struggling with what issue? It's the issue of injustice, right? People who love God suffer and people who hate God prosper. That's unjust or injustice. On the surface, then, this psalm doesn't really seem to talk about contentment, but here's the connection. Injustice is a specific flavor of discontentment. Injustice desires or wants wrong to be punished and right to triumph, which is a good desire. But even good desires can cross the line into sinful ones if we fixate on them. And that's what David is battling. He is becoming discontent over the injustice around him. And so in David's case, this is a righteous discontentment, and yet he is laying out principles that he may guard his heart by, that he may prevent sinful discontentment from growing. Therefore, these six actions found in Psalm 37 apply to all forms of discontentment. 
Psalm 37 lays out six actions that teach us how to be content. And as we begin, I have to ask, what is the flavor of your discontentment? David's was injustice, but what about for you? And maybe it's not just one. Maybe you've got a multiple scoop cone here. Are you discontent with your financial situation? What about your relationship status, your position at work, your stage of life? We could go on and on and on because the human heart is very creative in what we can be discontent about. But my prayer, and my prayer this week has been that by the end of our time together, we would see how these six actions can teach us to be content. I certainly don't preach to you as someone who's mastered these things. In fact, of all the sermons I've preached, I've had to pause more this week to confess and to let these truths sink into my own heart than I've had any other sermon because it's been so convicting to me. I'm not standing up here saying I am the model of contentment, but I'm simply sharing with you what God has taught to me. And as we'll see from Psalm 37 this morning, David's situation doesn't change, but he has learned to be content, and that's our goal as well. Though our situation may not change, though we may walk out into the same circumstances that we came into, the, came into this building with this morning, we can still learn to be content. So let's look at verses one through three and see the first action. And with these six actions, there's a progression. I'll try to point that out along the way. Verses one through three give us the first action. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and feed on his faithfulness. The first action is in verse three. That's the action of trusting in the Lord. Trusting is faith. We place our confidence in the Lord, looking to the Lord as the security of our lives. And if we don't trust the Lord, the ups and downs of life that are inevitable, that will come and affect all of us, will have an outsized effect on our faith. In this way, trusting the Lord is really the very foundation of contentment. If you don't trust the Lord, you will never make it past this. Who or what we trust in strikes at our very core. So we have to examine our own hearts. And I invite you to do that now. Examine your heart. How strong is my trust in the Lord? How quickly do I turn to him for strength? How often do I ask for his help when I feel that tide of discontentment growing? How well-worn are those mental paths that take you into the very presence of God, that lead you to trust in the Lord more? How often do you cry out to God, confessing your weakness and calling for strength? You see, the Lord remembers that we're dust. He knows exactly what we're made of because he created us. So he doesn't judge us for being weak. He invites us to draw near. Well, within these three verses of trusting in the Lord, David identifies four results, four results of trusting in the Lord. When we trust in the Lord, these four things will be true of us. And there are two negatives and two positives. A person who trusts in the Lord will first not be agitated over the situation. That's from verse one. The very first phrase says, do not fret because of evildoers. And when we look at the word fret, what normally comes to our minds, I think, is the idea of worry. I'm fretting, I'm kind of wringing my hands, I'm just mentally going over this over and over again, and I'm really worried and anxious about it. But actually, and that's true, that right now that word means to worry, and worry certainly does not help us with our contentment, but the word fret actually refers to an emotion of being aroused to anger and having a strong feeling of displeasure. 
Another Bible translation says this, do not be agitated. Every time this word is used in the Old Testament, it's in connection with anger. David was agitated at the injustice around him, and that was a righteous anger, but we have to take the warning as well. How often are we agitated over our circumstances, and it's not righteous at all? We grow agitated when we think about what we don't have. We become irritated about how it would feel to be released from this issue or this challenge. We get upset just thinking about that other person who has what we want. Discontentment produces irritation and anger and agitation of soul. And that anger often leads to envy. And that's the second thing David mentions, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Discontentment and envy really are sister vices. They usually come together and they abide under the same roof. Once we get dissatisfied with our current situation, it is a very natural and easy step to start looking over the fence at our neighbor. The grass is greener syndrome. We start to compare ourselves to others in an infinite number of ways, right? Wishing we had their income, their good looks, their personality, their career path, their kids' success, their level of influence, and so on and so forth. Truly trusting in the Lord results in no anger and no jealousy. And so we have to really be honest with ourselves and say, if I'm jealous or angry about something in my life, I'm probably discontent over something as well. I probably want something I don't have that God has not permitted. But let's switch to the positive. A person who trusts in the Lord will simply do what is right. Verse 3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. What does this mean? That means that a person who's trusting in the Lord will simply do the mundane aspects of life and embrace what they know is right. Discontent people often fail to complete basic responsibilities. They're too busy clamoring for something else, wasting their mental energy and emotional energy on something they can't have. And so they don't take care of what they do have. It leads to poor stewardship. For example, if you're discontent with your job, it's going to be very difficult to do an excellent job in all the details. Your heart's already set on something else and you can't fulfill what's in front of you. Discontentment demotivates us in that way. In contrast, content people are free to seize the opportunities that they have in front of them. They have the freedom to tackle their tasks with joy because they're not so worried and anxious and fretting and agitated over something they can't have. So they simply do what's right. They dwell in the land. They take care of their responsibilities. And then they will feed on God's faithfulness. They will feed their faith with the faithfulness of God. And this last phrase of verse three emphasizes a surprising reality. The person who trusts in the Lord will feed on God's faithfulness. The word feed was used of shepherds who brought their flocks out to pasture. And that's a beautiful image, isn't it? We, as God's sheep, have a pasture full of food to feed on. And what is that food? David says it's the faithfulness of God. You see, the person who trusts in the Lord will nourish their soul, will feed their faith, with the faithfulness of God. They have a well-nourished faith. For us to be content, the first thing we must be convinced of is the fact that the Lord is trustworthy. If we are not convinced that God is trustworthy and faithful, you can kiss contentment goodbye. 
He will not abandon us. He will always come through. And so his faithfulness supplies our spiritual diet with rich food. That's what Hebrews 13, five teaches. Let me read this for you. Be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Contentment connected to the faithfulness of God. The reason we can be content is because God is faithful. And I'm currently reading a biography on Hudson Taylor, the great missionary. Early in his ministry, he went over to China in his early 20s. And he frequently found himself at the limits of his earthly supplies. He was often at the end of his rope financially. But he learned to trust the Lord's faithfulness to provide for his needs. A couple days ago, I read on one occasion, after he assumed leadership of a missionary hospital, his finances were basically gone. The cook came to him and said that the last bag of rice was opened that morning and it was being distributed to the patients and it was quickly running out. What are we going to do? So put yourself in that situation. Let's modernize it for a moment. Your bank account says like $14. Okay, you're not completely broke, but you're basically broke. You can't pay your bills. You can barely buy food for today, let alone for other people. The pantry is empty. There's nothing to eat. And are you pushing the panic button yet? For me, the panic button would have been pushed about three weeks earlier. We may be pushing the panic button in that scenario, but Hudson Taylor wasn't. Here's how his response. He replied to the cook, and his reply exuded simple faith. He said, quote, then the Lord's time for helping us must be close at hand. We're on our last bag of rice. Oh, well, good. That means God's going to provide for us today. And within the morning, a letter arrived with a large sum of money to be used for the mission in whatever way they needed. God's faithfulness was proved again. And there are example after example in his life of how he trusted the faithfulness of God. Are you feeding your faith on the faithfulness of God? When you're tempted to be discontent, you can review God's past actions. You can allow God's faithfulness to minister to your heart. And that takes some mental energy to pause, to be quiet before the Lord, and to think back and say, how has God answered my prayers? How has God gone before me? How has he provided for my needs? And yet, that's what it means to feed on the faithfulness of God. Because when we consider these truths, our faith is stable. A full heart is a contented heart, just like a full stomach is a contented stomach. Could it be that we struggle with discontentment because our faith in God is too weak and our memory of God's faithfulness too short? Perhaps. And that's why the first step to learning contentment is to trust the Lord. The second step builds on that, and that's found in verse four. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. The second action is to delight yourself in the Lord. To delight is not simply to be happy about something. It means to take pleasure and enjoyment in an object, implying desirability in that object. In other words, to delight in something is to receive maximum enjoyment from that object because that object is precious to you. What are we to delight in? The psalm says the answer is who? It's the Lord himself, is it not? Contentment, then, is inseparable from the Lord. God is the great delight of the human heart because he's created us for him. That explains why contentment can't be achieved by a relationship, by an object, 
by an experience, by a position, by a possession. Lasting contentment only comes when a person knows their creator. When we delight in anything else other than him, we will be discontent in our souls. If you are here today and you don't know Christ as your savior, you may experience moments of contentment, but you'll never be able to live in a state of contentment where peace and joy and rest are the normal human experience. Contentment will be that elusive thing that you'll finally get the thing that you are after and you'll realize it's just as empty as the last thing. Jesus alone can satisfy the human heart and the Bible teaches us that to accept Christ as Savior is the first step to being fulfilled. Repent of your sins, trust him as Savior and come to him in faith. But many believers still struggle with discontentment, right? I think all of us would say that it's a temptation for us to some degree. And this points to a frightful reality then. We desire something more of this world than we desire our great God. That's the only explanation. If we are discontent, that means we have set our affections on things below rather than things above. How sad is it when we as God's own children who are in his family give way to the plague of discontentment in our souls? We who know the Lord and have been redeemed by his son should of all people be content. Why do we not delight in the Lord? Why do we not desire more of God? Why do we settle for wanting more trinkets and toys and things when we know that that can't satisfy us? We were made for something more. Our American culture is no friend of grace in this respect. The American Christian experience means that we have to resist the allurements of temporary life. We must resist the temptation to love things instead of loving our God. And that will only happen as we delight in the Lord. And when we do that, when we delight in the Lord, when we take enjoyment from him, when we seek our contentment and our satisfaction in him, what's the result? Verse four says, he will give you the desires of your heart. This is not a verse to rip out of context and say, well, whatever I want, I'm gonna get, praise the Lord. That doesn't work like that. If you don't delight in the Lord, you don't get the desires of your heart. We will find God to be all we need when we make him the supreme object of our lives. When we find God to be our all in all, that will be answered. Our desires will be granted. He will satisfy us and fill our hearts with contentment. And this sounds a lot like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those, verse 8, for those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. To make God our supreme delight may cost us something of value in this life. And we should admit that. To love God with all your heart will cost you something in this world's currency. It will. But our problem is that we have an inadequate currency scale. What we gain eternally will be far more significant and a far longer lasting prize. And that's to be filled with the Lord himself, to see him, to know him, and to experience the joy and the peace of walking with him. Contentment means we must delight in the Lord. Now verses five through six lay out the third step of obedience, committing your situation to the Lord. Verses five and six, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So with this action, we see that the Lord acknowledges our hardships. 
Though we trust him and though we delight in him, we still face difficult things that we have to give to him. Otherwise, if life was easy, we wouldn't have to commit anything to the Lord, right? we just trust and delight and that'd be the end of it. It'd be a short psalm, <laughs> four verses. But because life is hard and life is broken and life has injustice and things that are broken in it, there's more for us here. When we trust in God and delight in him, we have to commit our ways to the Lord. That word commit literally means to roll upon. It's used in the book of Genesis when Jacob rolled a stone away from a well so that he could water a flock of sheep. In this passage, it's obviously used metaphorically. David is not saying go find the nearest boulder and roll it somewhere, and that's committing your way to the Lord. But it's a graphic picture, isn't it? That our burdens feel like weights. They feel as big as boulders sometimes. And David is saying what we ought to do is roll those things on the Lord. When we do this, we acknowledge to God that we would like to be delivered from this situation, but that it's in his hands. Verse 5 mentions the idea of trust again. The word trust is there. So we could say it this way. We entrust the situation to God and then trust God to do his work. Simply put, this means we give everything to the Lord and refuse to take it back. Give it all entirely to the Lord. And yes, that's not great English. I, that, that is intentional, unlike the former mistake. This one is intentional. It gets the point across. Every part of the burden must be committed totally to the Lord. Don't hold something back. Don't take it back. Because that's what we ought not do. When you give it to the Lord, don't take it back. Stop trying to take it back, right? If we picture our situations, whatever you're struggling with this morning, picture as a giant boulder, we roll it to God, and yet how many of us are like running around to the other side of it saying, all right, Lord, now I'm going to take it back. That doesn't make any sense. If we start pulling the boulder toward us, what's going to happen? We're going to get crushed by it. Let him bear the burden. Give it to God and walk away. God's not interested in playing hot potato with us. And he's certainly not interested in playing tug of war. We're too small for that. If we try to take the burden back, we may even be guilty of trying to micromanage God. How embarrassing would that be? When we stand before him someday and he says, you know, you had a great life, but you micromanaged me. If we're unsettled in our souls, we probably have not fully committed the situation to the Lord or we've taken the burden back. And that unsettledness, that lack of calmness should tip us off to our discontentment because when we commit the situation to God, verse six shows us the result. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. In other words, God will act on your behalf. In David's battle against injustice, he believed God would act with justice and vindicate him. That's what he's referring to. So let's take the principle and step back. In our lives, we must trust that God will act and he will do it in his time. So to commit to the Lord involves submission on our part. We have to stop fighting God and let him take over it. We have to trust God enough to let him act in his time. We have to be content not only with God in charge, but content with his solution to our challenges. We must commit to not being backseat drivers, telling God where to go and how to get there, and yet saying at the same time, no, 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 you're the one driving. 
To commit our way to the Lord requires us to bow low in humility and acknowledge the authority of God in all our ways. And that goes against the grain of our sinful hearts, right? That's not easy. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like surrendering something of ourselves to someone else, even when it's surrendering ourselves to the Lord who saved us. Now, this is a good time to pause and remember that these actions progress from one to another. Only after we trust in the Lord can we truly commit the situation to him. And only after we make him the object of our delight, we say, not my will, Father, but yours. And then once we've truly committed the situation to the Lord in a spirit of humility, there's really not much else to do other than to practice patience and rest. He's got the burden now, so why are we so upset? Look at verses 7 through 11. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The fourth step then is to rest in the Lord. And this is a larger section. We're going to look at the first portion of it. Other translations here for verse 7 don't say rest. They say be still or be silent before the Lord. And when I hear this word, I think of a mountain lake that's so perfectly calm. There are no ripples in the water whatsoever. It's a perfect reflection of the mountains behind it. The water looks like glass. That's what a heart content and at rest looks like. The way to detect contentment then is to simply ask, am I at rest in the Lord? Because true contentment leads to rest. There's no anxiety, there's no anger, there's no worries, there's no frustrations, there's no hand-wringing, there's no pacing around the room. We're at rest, we're still. But if you try to be still and you skip the first three steps, it's just gonna be really frustrating. As one of my professors says, there is noise in our souls these things of anxiety and anger and frustration, this is noise in our hearts. Our hearts are at rest, quiet before the Lord when we are content. And David here mentions three components of resting in the Lord. Let's look at them quickly. First is be patient as you wait for the Lord to act. Rest in the Lord, and the next phrase in verse 7, wait patiently for him. A soul at rest patiently waits for the Lord. And as we just noted, that means we remain in a state of peace for as long as God permits the situation to continue. Because it is God's will for you to be content no matter what situation you are in. Living in a state of contentment is not a one-time decision. It takes constant effort to keep our hearts fixed on the Lord, doesn't it? So we are to be patient as we wait for the Lord to act. And then David says, again, put away all forms of anger. Four times in these two verses, there's a restriction, there's a prohibition against anger. We're to forsake anger and wrath. We're not to fret. Don't be worried. Don't be angry. And we came across this word fret in verse 1. Here, David commands us not to be agitated by our current moment. So resting in the Lord means that we have put the agitations and the frustrations aside. Because to be agitated and be at rest are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. This is the way I like to look at anger and frustration and irritation in my own heart. I look at it like warning lights. They are sins, but they are symptoms of something deeper. 
they signal to me that discontentment has infiltrated my heart and it's preventing me from experiencing the rest of the Lord. So if, if you look in your heart and you sense anger or frustration or irritation, ask the Lord to reveal to you where you are discontent. Don't go on a witch hunt, but simply looking at your car dashboard and saying, oh, the check engine light's on, I'm gonna ignore that. Our mechanic friends in the room would say, eventually that'll come back to haunt you. And if we let anger and frustration and irritation just continue, we're not reaching the root problem. So put away all forms of anger. And then third, take the long view of the situation. And this is a longer section. We're not gonna go verse by verse through it, but I'm gonna summarize. Verses nine through 26 teach us the secret to resting in the Lord. You want to rest in the Lord? You wanna put anger away? You wanna be patient? Then you have to take God's perspective of whatever situation you are in. Take the long view. Verses 9 through 11, there's a contrast. Evildoers will be destroyed, but the meek who rest in the Lord and wait for him will inherit the earth. That sounds, again, a lot like the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Discontentment inflicts its victims with a case of blindness. It views life only through the lens of the moment. Contentment, however, steps back and takes God's view of the situation and says, if this is God's will, he is in charge. I trust him. I will delight in him. I will commit it to him. I will be patient by the grace of God. And what a comfort it is to know that God cares for those who rest in him. Here are some of the results in verses 9 through 26. God orders this person's steps or establishes their steps. He upholds them. He shows them mercy. He gives them their daily bread. I don't know about you, but that sounds like everything we actually need We don't technically need a Wi-Fi signal. We don't need two cars. We do need daily bread to live. God promises that. And now as David progresses, he revisits the truth he brought up earlier. Back in verse three, our first step, we saw that he says, trust in the Lord and do good. And he's going to develop that second idea of doing good further in this next section. So let's look at verses 27 through 29. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. And so the fifth step is to do good for the Lord. And here's a summary of the five in case you missed one. Do good for the Lord. This action is how we show our contentment. Doing good does not lead to contentment, but when we are content, we will do good. By going about our business, we will demonstrate our trust in the Lord because we're not fretting over what we want. We're not agitated over what we don't have. Instead, we are taking care of what God has given to us. Content people serve others. Discontent people are focused only on themselves and their unmet expectations. And you can usually tell who a discontent person is because they like to talk about it. If you find yourself struggling to do right and serve others, perhaps you're wrestling with discontentment in some other area. And this, this I think, reminds us of a, of a necessary truth. Contentment is not passivity. So when we think of the idea of contentment, we shouldn't get in our minds, I just sit back and do nothing. 
Contentment is not passive. We don't resign ourselves to our fate and throw up our hands in indifference and say, well, whatever happens, happens, and I'll be content with that. Contentment drives good works. This person who is content works on what they can control and leaves the rest to God. And David here mentions some specific actions. The content person practices justice because the Lord loves it. They speak wisdom because it's right. They hide the law of God in their hearts because it's God's truth. And the result is that the Lord protects his people. God basically says to us, if you faithfully fulfill your responsibilities while trusting everything to me, I'll preserve you. I'll take care of you. The reality is God is strong enough to hold up his end of the bargain. Do we have enough faith to throw ourselves on his arms? Glance at what the Lord does in these verses. In verse 28, he doesn't forsake his saints. Verse 28 again, he preserves his people. Verse 29, he gives the land to the righteous. 31, he keeps his steps from sliding. 32, he will not leave them to the wicked. Verse 33, he will acquit them. The Lord will act for those who are content in him. And this final step then draws out a principle mentioned earlier. And this final step is in verses 34 through 40. Wait on the Lord, there it is. Wait on the Lord. Keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a native green tree. Does that describe our world? Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Wait on the Lord. This may be the hardest part of the whole process. The second phrase, keep his way, in verse 34, reminds us that this is a long-term strategy. To live in a state of contentment day after day, we have to actively work to wait on the Lord. Once again, our culture doesn't help us in this matter. Modern society believes that what is good is immediate. What is good is something I can get right now. And if we have to wait for it, it's not good. But that's not how God's system works. Almost always, the valuable thing in God's eyes is something we have to wait for. One of the greatest means of spiritual growth is the sanctifying grace of waiting. Think about all the people in Scripture who had to wait. Noah, 100 years building an ark. That's a long time to build something. Moses, 40 years in the backside of the wilderness. Go to the New Testament. Paul, the most learned man in Judaism. How many years does he spend after he comes to Christ studying? Three. Waiting. When we wait, we are forced to practice this process over and over. Day after day, then, we surrender control of our lives to God. Day after day, we accept the situation he's placed us in. Daily, we rise from our knees and embrace the opportunities to live for Christ. Day after day, we quell the noise in our souls with the faithfulness of God. And when we look back, we realize that God has grown us through the waiting. Even though we couldn't sense progress and we don't see what God is doing, we look back and say, he's growing me. God uses these obstacles to change us and deepen our faith as we wait. 
And in this last section of Psalm 37, we see several terrific benefits for those who wait on the Lord. God will exalt them to inherit the land. That was a promise to the nation of Israel. God provides them a future of peace. God delivers them from the wicked. God will help them and save them. Essentially, David is saying, those who wait on the Lord will never be disappointed. And our response to that is, but waiting is so hard. It's so hard. Contentment, that's also hard. So verse 39 encourages us when it says, the Lord is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord is their strength in time of trouble. You see, this this process of learning contentment really is a spiritual battle. And without the Lord's strength, the battle will defeat us. Without the Lord, overcoming discontentment is just way too hard. It's too deep a root, too strong a current, too powerful an attraction. But the Lord is our strength who enables us to be content in all situations. Perhaps it was this very verse that Paul was thinking about in Philippians 4.13 when he wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This wonderful verse is so often taken out of context, you know, in, in locker rooms or in classrooms or in knitting clubs, I can do all things through Christ. That's true. But what's the original context? The original context is the secret of contentment. That's what Paul is talking about here. Paul's secret of contentment is that Jesus Christ gives us strength to be content. So if you are in Christ and a believer, you always have the power to be content because it's not within you, it's within Christ. In Christ, we always have a reason to be content and we always have strength to be content. How liberating then is it to know that changing my circumstances won't make me content? There's freedom in that. There's freedom in knowing that in Christ we can live with a state of contentment because with Jesus all things are possible. Yes, it is possible to be content. You and I can do all things, even being content through Christ who strengthens us. That is the beauty of walking with the Lord, of trusting the Lord, of delighting in him, of giving all to him. Let's go to him now and ask him for strength and help with these things. Father, you know our frame. You remember that we are dust. We are weak people, broken people, redeemed by a glorious Savior, still in that process of becoming more and more like you. And we confess that so often our hearts grow discontent. We fall in love with things that we think will make us happy, things that will give us peace and joy and contentment. And we swallow lies wholeheartedly. Sometimes we run to them. Sometimes we even propagate these lies and tell other people them, not realizing that in our wonderful relationship with Christ, we have all we need to be content. And as we consider our own hearts, we do pray that none of us, myself included, would walk out from here being just a hearer, but doers. The temptation of discontentment is an easy one. It's a very popular one in our culture. It's even smiled upon in our culture. So help us, we pray through the strength of Christ to detect and to destroy the sins and the weeds and the roots of discontentment. This will not be an easy process. It will not be a quick process, we know, Father, but we know that through your Spirit's power, we have all we need because he is in the process of transforming us to be like your son. So minister to us, we pray, and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.